Discontentment is true of every generation. It's that feeling that says, this isn't enough. I want more, I'm not satisfied, and I don't have to look any further than my kids to see this every single day. That one day they have new toys, and the very next day they're like, can we get new ones? What, we, we just bought this for you. Now, just to be fair, this isn't just with our, my kids here who struggle with this, but we struggle with this too. Now, have you ever noticed this, that if you ever go to a hair salon, that it's always amusing where in a hair salon, you have those with curlier hair, they want straight hair. But those with straight hair want their hair to be permed. Those who are blonde want to be brunettes. Brunettes want to be blonde. Those who have no hair want hair. And those who have hair shave their heads, right? It's just like, whoa, what's going on here, right? No one's happy with what they have. We live in one of the most consumeristic societies in all of history, that there's been no other time, especially in America, where there's been more wealth and abundance like we've seen, yet we are so unhappy. Bigger homes, nicer cars, bigger offices, larger churches, you know, bigger paychecks, you know, more degrees, the next iPhone, discontentment is all around us. You know, John D. Rockefeller, a 19th century businessman and one of the richest men in history, was asked, how much is enough? Rockefeller said, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. We are a people who are discontent. But here's the thing. Discontentment, being unsatisfied, is not bad in itself. What makes discontentment bad is what we look to fill that hunger with. That when we look to the horizontal for our contentment, that is sin. But when we look to the vertical, to God for contentment, that's worship. So for example, when you're at home and you wish your home felt homier, that's not a sinful feeling. That's a reminder that you're made for a better home, heaven. That when you wish that your body didn't get old or sick or hurt, that's not a sin. That's a reminder to look to your resurrected body. When you wish that your friendships and your marriage was deeper, that's not a sin. It's a reminder to look to the perfect fellowship with Jesus and other believers in heaven. You know, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Let me show it to you. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You know, today in our psalm, David tells us the source of all contentment, all satisfaction, all joy, and it's the presence of God. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, just imagine that. God's right hand is full of pleasure. So you go there and you take some, and then there's more. And you take some more pleasure, and there's more. And you keep taking and taking, there's more, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And it goes on forever. There is infinite pleasure found in God. To be a Christ follower is not to deny yourself of pleasure, it's to live in light of the reality that the greatest pleasure and happiness and fulfillment that I can experience is found in knowing God. Friends, do you want this? I want this. Do you hunger for this type of joy and contentment? I hope so, because this is the type of life God wants for you. You know, so with that, let me just show you how David was able to know and experience this. And let me show you the points that we're going to work through today in our psalm. And I'm going to go through these points pretty quick. So how do we have good, glad hearts? 
First, we find it in crisis. We find it in godly community. We find it in God's chosen portion. We find it in God, our counselor. And then finally, we find it in Christ, okay? So first, we find it in crisis. Look at verse one and two with me here. Verse one says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, we don't know the exact context of this psalm, but we do know that David is facing hard times. We know this, first off, because in verse 1, David says, God, will you be my refuge? God, will you keep me safe? Also, in verse 4, he talks about those who chase after false gods. And in verse 10, he asks God not to let his life be lost to death. Don't let me go to Sheol or to the afterlife. Don't let my body be corrupted, which means physical decay. So when you put this all together, this psalm probably puts David in a season of life where he's running from King Saul, who wants to kill him. That 10 years before becoming king, David was living in caves and fearing for his life. And it's under this crisis, I believe, that David writes this psalm of confidence. And if you ever read the psalms, notice that most of the psalms are not written in times of abundance and peace, but most of the psalms are written in adversity. That David was in the real world of suffering, and that didn't take joy from David, but it produced some of the greatest moments of growth and maturing and praying and gladness in his life. You know, in verses 1 and 2, David calls God by three different Hebrew names. Notice here. He says in verse 1, preserve me, O God. In Hebrew, that's Elohim. God, Elohim, for in you I take refuge. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Anytime you see that, that is God's covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. So we have Elohim, we have Yahweh, and then David says, you are my Lord. L, capital L, but lowercase O-R-D. That's the Hebrew word for Adonai. So we have Elohim, Yahweh, and Adonai, and each of these names could be its own sermon series. But the point here is that David draws close to God in his crisis. He calls to him in three different names, okay? Most of us only know a person by one name, but if you know him by three different names, their nicknames, that means you're in close, okay? David knew his God. As a matter of fact, Adonai is in the possessive, in the Greek. It's not, David says, my Lord, not your Lord, not their Lord, my Lord. In crisis, David knew that God had to increase and he had to decrease. This is why it says at the end of verse 2, I have no good apart from you. David understood that he had no righteousness apart from God. He had no natural goodness because any goodness he had, anything good in his life, was all a gift from God. You know, if you're facing a crisis today, and instead of it drawing you closer to God, but it's pushing you further away from God, might I just say that I think that's happening because you're still holding on to your goodness. That maybe you say in your hearts, you know, that, you don't, that God owes me this. That you don't understand why God would allow anything hard to happen to your life. What's happening here is that you're relating to God, not in a personal way, but in a transactional way. 
That if I live a good life, if I go to church, if I give to church, if I do street outreach, you know, if, if, I, if I do a missions trip, if I stay faithful to my family, God should be good to me because I'm good to him. That's what, that's transactional. But notice, David is saying the complete reverse. God, I know you're good to me because in crisis, I can see you even more clearly. How you're loving me, how you're securing me, how you're growing me. This is David seeing his crisis from an eternal spiritual perspective. If you want to grow in gladness, don't see your hard circumstances as a barrier to joy, but the very process and path and how God grows it. I think we would say all the same things. I know I would say the same things, that it's when I'm in the heat, it's when I'm in the crisis, that my prayer life is more persistent, more consistent, and more heartfelt than any other time in my life. But as long as you think you deserve better than that, you're going to miss the grace of God in those moments. Here's the second insight. We find gladness in godly community. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent, excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So David says here that I have gladness in my heart because of the people of God. I delight in them because we share the same love we chase after God together. And look at the contrast in verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David says, I don't delight in godless people in their godless ways. Now, I want to be careful. This doesn't mean that we reject those who don't believe in God, okay? That's not what it's saying here. What this verse is saying is that David is saying, I don't delight in the way they chase after false gods. I won't join them in in their foolishness. Instead, I'm going to run after them. I'm going to run after these spiritually lost people. That's why we're doing the 100 days here is so that we can show them and tell them the love of God. The point that David makes here is so clear. The people of God make my heart glad. He loves being around other believers. Now, this is where it might get a little hard for us here. Because it's a whole lot easier to say, I delight in God. I have no good apart from you. I can say that and pray that every single day. But it's a whole lot harder to say, I love the people of God. I love to serve them. I love to be around them. You know, I, I, I love church. They're so great, right? For some of us, that's really, really hard. That some of us, some of the most painful relationships that we've been in might have happened in a Christian community. So it might be hard for you to say, man, like, I don't, Kenson, I know the verse is saying that David found gladness in God's people, but I'm not sure I can say that. Well, here's the question for you. How do you know if someone loves God? How do you know if someone loves God? Now, I'm sure you could say things like, well, during the quiet times, praying, you know, scripture reading, and that is not wrong. But there is one true marker that the scripture consistently says gives proof that you love God, and that's when you love others. 1 John 4.20 says this. Let me show it to you. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
If you delight in God, you will delight in God's people. Now, you know, if you can't stand the messiness of other Christians, remember, you're not a basket of peaches either, all right? You're also a sinner in need of grace. And let, you, let me just tell you something. If you're annoyed with others, very likely they're probably annoyed with you, okay? That, that's just the honest truth here. And oftentimes, the way we treat others says more about our character and our heart than the other person. If you have a gladness in God, it will show itself in gladness with the people of God because these are the very people that God uses to encourage you and to spur you on towards love and good deeds. There's 56, at least 56 one another's commands in the Bible that we're told to love one another, care for one another, help one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, share with one another. Now, the first thing I wanna say is this, is that if you hope to live an obedient Christian life, you can't do it alone. Why? Because you can't can't obey these verses then, right? So you need to be in community if you really want to obey God. But secondly, don't miss this. We are wired to be connected to one another to grow. That for some of us, the very reason you don't want to be part of that biblical community, part of that small group, is the very reason why you need to be in one. For some of you, the reason you're so sour and critical towards other believers is that instead of seeing them through the grace and patience of God's perspective, we see them through our self-righteousness. We need godly friendships because they challenge our self-centeredness and teaches us to be generous in how we think and treat others. If we want to have glad hearts, we will find it in godly community. Here's the next insight. We find gladness because God is our chosen portion. Verse five and six. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, in verse five, David declares again, his treasure is in God, that God is my chosen portion and cup. Now, this is a picture where like, it's a, like a banqueting table and there are hundreds of portions of food and drinks spread out on the table and one of them is the Lord. And David is saying, all day, every day, I'm going to choose the Lord's cup because God is my greatest treasure. He is better than anything else that is before me. Why? Verse six, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, the, the lines here refer to borders or boundaries that God has given him. This is language that points you to this idea of land. That when the Israelites came into the promised land, they were all assigned a specific portion of that land. That this tribe goes here, that tribe goes over there, this tribe goes here, right? It's on this land, you can farm, you can build your livelihood, you can build your home, you can grow your family. This was the land that was passed down from generation to generation. But David right now, here's the thing, David right now is on the run. He's not in his land, but he's in a cave. So David can't be talking about his ancestral inheritance. Instead, he has something better in mind. He is saying, I have the Lord and that is all I need. God, you are my real estate agent, and I don't care what land you give me. I don't care if it's the middle of the desert. I don't care if it's in the middle of a cave. As long as you are with me, that's enough. The borders of David's life was wrapped in the presence of God. For David, there was no substitute for the presence of God. 
And I love this word. He says inheritance here. Now, now for some of us, we've had the blessing of receiving an inheritance. An inheritance is usually given after someone passes away as a way for them to continue to bless and provide for a loved one. It could be money and possessions. And for some of the folks here, maybe you had a wealthy uncle or aunt, and it could have been like a windfall of money. And it was amazing, right? And when you get to receive an inheritance like that, like all of a sudden you want to tell people like, oh my goodness, can I just tell you how generous my uncle and aunt was? Can I just tell you about my inheritance? Let me just say something, that if you were to go to David and to say that, David would be like, big deal. Do you want to hear about my inheritance? The Lord is my portion and inheritance. When everything is said and done, I get God. That is my portion. That is my inheritance. Church, can I just say, this is the birthright of every born-again Christian, That in the death of Jesus Christ, he has purchased for us a treasure that cannot be touched by rust or moth. And this treasure is our salvation. It is our relationship with God. And notice that David in this moment is not looking at his present life. He's not looking at the cave. He's looking past it, past his crisis, past his challenges, past his struggles. His eyes are on the promises of God. His eyes are on a greater home, a greater land, a greater rest that is found in God's presence. This is ours in Christ. Nothing on this earth can touch it. This is why God is David's chosen portion, because whatever God gives him, it will always be infinitely better than what the world can give. And this should fill our hearts with gladness. Here's the next insight. We find gladness in God our counselor. Verse 7, straightforward enough. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. Now notice that God is not only his refuge and his treasure and his portion and his inheritance, God is also his counselor. God is the one who guides him. That when David is confronted with idols, God guides him away from them. When David faces crisis, God instructs him. When David needs refuge, God counsels him on how to escape. This is why David is glad, because he knows God loves him because God guides him. That as much as my kids dislike the fact that I tell them what is right or wrong, and they hate it when I do that, they hate it when I say it's time to go to bed, hey, it's time to stop playing video games, hey, it's time to do your homework, hey, you know, stop kicking people, hey, stop running across the street. They hate it when I say stuff like that. You know, don't bite people. Ah, I hate you. Don't do that. That's rude. But for those of us who are mature enough, we know that that is love. God guides us because he loves us. Now, for some of us here, we're struggling with gladness because we feel that God isn't guiding us, that we feel very directionless with our lives. But what you need to see here is that God is our counselor, that God is so committed to guiding us that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to all believers to be our counselor. That's the promise. That's what he's given us. In addition, that book that you're holding on to, God's not playing hide and go seek with you here. He's telling you how to find him. He's telling you how to live. God is our counselor. So the problem we face Usually it's not God's unwillingness to lead us. It's usually our unwillingness to follow his ways. You know, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6 says this. Let me show it to you. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Notice what this verse is saying. If you want God to lead you, if you want God to counsel you, if you want God to guide you, he must have full control. You know, a picture of how I see this play out is, is that of driving a car. Let me just show you a picture of what, how I think this kind of plays out in our lives sometimes here, okay? Now, what this verse is saying is that God wants to drive the car of your life, okay? And, and he needs all of the steering wheel, but the problem is that we're horrible backseat drivers. So this is what happens, that God is driving and he starts to turn in this direction. I'm like, I don't really like that direction. He starts to go the long way. I don't really like that way. You know, and then what happens is that you grow impatient, you think you know better, and you start to fight over the steering wheel. Now let me just tell you something. When you're driving and there's multiple people fighting for the steering wheel, is that a good thing? No, that's a horrible, thank you, right? That's a horrible thing. You don't do stuff like that. It's nothing but bad news. If God is God and he loves you and wants to guide you, will you humble yourself and let him do just that? Will you do that? David was glad because Jesus took the wheel, right? You guys get that? Jesus took the wheel. Here, here's, here's a final insight, okay? Final insight. We have gladness in Christ. Gladness in Christ. Verses 8 and 10. I have set the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You know, David says that he has set the Lord always before me. Now, if you write in your Bibles, that's a good word to circle, the word set, because you know what that means? It means that David has put the Lord first, that he has put the Lord as his priority, and because of that, I will not be shaken. That when I put the Lord before me, look at the qualifier here. When I put the Lord before me, I will not be shaken because God is unshakable. So there's nothing that God gives me that can be shaken. His gifts for me are secure. My inheritance is secure. My eternal blessings are secure. Now in contrast, many things in our lives can be shaken. Our careers, our health our relationships, our finances, our schooling, because none of these things will last forever. You know, Billy Graham once said, I never saw a U-Haul behind a hearse. The reason we shake is because we have put other things ahead of God so that when they shake, we shake. Another way that you can say verse 8 in a negative way, you can say it this way, I have set fill in the blank, whatever you want, right? I've set fill in the blank always before me, and because it is at my right hand, I am shaken. If God is not your priority, your life will be shaken, but if God is set first in your life, you can rest in God's care, which then now leads to verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, okay? So I'm still glad because God keeps me secure. I'm confident in his security. Well, why do you have all this confidence? Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, David is saying, the reason I have confidence in God is because God won't let my life be lost to death. Now, how could David say this? Well, in one sense, I think David could say this because he didn't fear death because he didn't put his physical life first. 
Instead, he set his spiritual life with God first. But I actually think what's happening here is much deeper than that. Because David did die. David did go to the grave. His body did experience decay. What I think David is speaking to, whether he knew it or not, is that he was talking about someone else. Someone who would be the true and ultimate holy one. The greater and better David, Jesus Christ. You know, on the day of Pentecost, when thousands came to know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they did so in response to a sermon that the apostle Peter gave. And in that sermon, Peter quotes Psalm 16 as he talks about the Messiah, Jesus. Let me show you what Peter said in Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 22 says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David said concerning him, and now he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, full of, you will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But therefore, being a prophet, David, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses." Peter says here that Psalm 16 is all about the resurrection of Jesus. This is why David, even in a cave, could have gladness in his heart because he knew that there would be one who would conquer death. For those who would trust in the Messiah, they too would know that death would not have the final word, that death could not keep David and us from the fullness of joy in God's presence and the eternal pleasures at his right hand. As a matter of fact, not only does death not cancel the promises of God, death is the very entry to an eternity in the presence of God. It's in heaven we experience the fullness of joy. That whatever joy or happiness you're experiencing today, please know this. It is only but a speck of what heaven is going to be like. That is worth rejoicing over. No matter the circumstances you are facing today, for those of us who believe Christ as Lord and Savior, we claim this same promise. God did not abandon David, and God will not abandon us because he has given us Jesus Christ. Jesus who died and rose again on the third day and who now sits at the right hand of God and will one day come again in glory, he will resurrect his own. And we who hold to the resurrection of Jesus, we will never be shaken because we will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen? Amen. So church, do you want glad hearts? Do you want to be unshakable? If so, exalt in God your safest refuge. Exalt in God your supreme treasure. Exalt in God as the father of your adopted family.
Exalt in God, your trusted counselor. Exalt in Jesus, the greater and better David, who conquered death and secured our eternity. You know, John Piper, a pastor and author, said this. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. Let me just say that again. Pleasure is the measure of your treasure. In other words, what you find most delight in is also what you find most important in your heart. This is why God cares about your joy, because the greater your pleasure is in him, the more God is glorified. You know, I just shared with you guys that for the last two weeks, I was in Los Angeles taking classes at Biola University, and that's a long time away from my family. And Susan, she was an amazing single mother. She parented with joy and also held down a full-time job. So I flew back from home, and I walked through the door, and I see my four boys. And my three oldest were like, hey. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like hey? I'm like, that, that's it? And they're on their iPads like, Hey? But my fourth son, who is three years old, he screams, Baba, Baba, and runs to me and jumps off the stairs, which is crazy dangerous, to give me a hug. And he says, while hugging me, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you, I miss you, over and over again. First, this is why my youngest son is my favorite, okay? I'm not ashamed to say it. But second, I was so honored because I felt so treasured. My youngest son didn't care if what his other brothers were doing. He didn't care about the flight of stairs. I was more important than any of that. Now, just imagine that all my sons did give me hugs, and they did say, we miss you, but because mom said so, right? Would I be honored in that? No. What honored me was the joy my youngest son had for me. It was his delight in me. When we find our gladness in exalting God, God is honored. When we know that he is our only refuge, our only comfort, our only counselor, our only portion, and you come to him, he is honored. When we come to him in forgiveness and quit trying to earn his love through our self-righteousness, he is honored. When we turn from the worldly pleasures and the works of the flesh, the devil is shamed and God is honored. You know, the Westminster Catechism hits it right on the head and says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you want gladness of heart, exalt your God. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray.